Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. I'm Becca from Oakland, California. And while you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, welcome to Reno, Nevada. Here we are in Reno. I have a mouthful of cheese and wine, so I'll try to make sure I pronunciate it properly, appropriately. Careful there. You don't want to. We don't want to hear you. You know, pass out on, on and choke on cheese and wine on the second day of the conference. That, that'd make news. Uh, that would be par for the course. <laughs> well, listeners, uh, thank you for joining us uh, yet again for another year of uh, of us doing this. And as tradition dictates. We're here in the vendor hall on Tuesday night, and uh, you may have heard our guests start off the show. That's going to be our new thing for this year. I like it. And uh, so here at the conference, and then throughout the year as we go to other conferences, Glenn and I are going to record people saying our my those first two lines that I usually say, and uh, that'll start off the uh, the uh, the episode, and then we'll move in and um, uh, and go on with the rest of our topic. But this episode is a little bit different because that intro voice is going to join us for the rest of the show hi rebecca how are you i'm good how are you guys we are fan friggin tastic well mainly like a big part of that is because of all the help that you've been giving us over the past uh year or so um as as, as marketing director and friend of the show and and uh, you know tweeter and uh and all, all sorts of stuff so thank you so much for helping us out uh you're welcome i prefer becca md because it just sounds really cool it does sound pretty cool it, 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 it's great. Yeah, I agree. So, I guess we should probably get into talking about the conference stuff. Um, it's word is that this is the biggest conference that they've done since, uh, except for the the hundred year anniversary that was over in Sacramento. Yeah, it is crowded right. here. No, it, it, and the workshops are very full. At the last minute, they had like a two hundred plus, maybe three hundred plus surge in the last few weeks because just up until a couple of weeks ago, it had been uh, maybe eleven 1, hundred. Maybe a thousand. Even still, that's good. No, I mean, th- that's a good turnout. Yeah. but it surged to like fourteen hundred. It was it was crazy. That is awesome. And we got, I think they said twenty seven countries represented here. Um, it's just it's just incredible, and and uh, it's always great to see old friends and everybody here in the fingerprint discipline. Like it's like a family reunion. Yeah, it is, and it, it's it's in a fabulous hotel and casino in the biggest little city in the world. Well done. Let's switch over to uh, Becca. Uh, our standard question here on the Tuesday night uh, vendor hall things is, what have you seen so far conference-wise? And kind of what are your thoughts? What has stood out to you? What have you found interesting, good, bad, indifferent? Well, there are certainly a lot of people here. It's very crowded. And I have had a little bit of wine, so I'm feeling good right now. I think the lecture that stood out to me the most was about... The limited examinations that we do in laboratories, usually to save cost and time, uh, by Sarah Chu and Matt Marvin. And Sarah's from the Innocence Project, so obviously I think that hits pretty close to home with her. And I think they both came about it from a really reasonable perspective. They, they provided a lot of info about different types of limited exams, but then also said, okay, here's what we really need at a minimum. And if you are going to do limited exams, which we understand you might have to do, here's really what we really need from you. And basically just clarity and reports, what you haven't done, what you have done, that kind of thing that I thought it was very reasonable. Yeah. In, in fact, I, that was actually my favorite slide in the entire presentation. Because up to this point, up, up to that point, I mean, they made a pretty impassioned plea. If you can do everything, you should do everything. You should analyze every latent print verify every conclusion but 
the reality is not all agencies have the resources to do that. And so at the end they go, okay, and this is what I really liked. It's the real world application. They basically said, all right, fine. If your agency can't do that and you're going to do limited examinations, then there are some non-negotiables. For example, you can't throw away evidence. You have to collect and process all the evidence and then keep that evidence, retain it. You have to retain all possible prints that are suitable for comparison or maybe not suitable but could be looked at later. Document your comparisons and APHIS searches. Uh, present what you have examined versus what you haven't and put that in a report. Make sure the report says we have latent prints that have not been analyzed. We have latent prints that have effectively not been tested. And basically do as much as you can within your policy but then preserve everything for later. And this is one the one thing I, 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 I smiled at, I'd love to see more of, but is likely a no-go for many labs is, and allow defense the opportunity to ask for those additional exams as well. Many publicly funded laboratories have to, by whatever silly, in my view, that's my opinion, Glenn's opinion, silly policy, the request must come in from a police organization or a prosecutor, which we're supposed to be a neutral scientific entity. That's such it's total BS. Well, with that whole thing, uh, I've heard from uh, labs that are pretty successfully implemented that. Uh, like, um, I think uh, even it was Michelle Triplett talks about her lab in King County, Washington, being open to if if the request comes in, whether it's from uh, a defense attorney or she was. I think she was even saying other public labs in other states. That they'll do all sorts of work so for them. Have they them. done that, or they have the policy? The, uh, There's from, a difference between having the policy and actually doing it. From my understanding of what she said, that they've actually done this. So oh, okay, um, well, fair enough. And and uh, now it may come with a nominal fee. It's not like an exorbitant kind no, of no, thing, no, but, but but that's that's fair, right? Uh, and it, it's from what she said, it's fairly reasonable. And I'm like, okay. I mean, now granted, King County. Just if you people out there listening don't know, uh, are very well staffed. Um, yeah. in their operations. So um, they're, they're maybe not be in the same place as other agencies, but yeah. that's out there. And I, I think one of the big ones that they kept hitting on was search every latent through APHIS. Yeah. Because that's like the one thing that's the hardest for defense to get done later on. Uh, and, and as a private examiner, I suffer through that because other than a court order, and we talked about this in the previous episode, other than getting a judge to sign a court order, if the lab says, yeah, we, we're not going to run it, there's nothing we can do. I mean, even even someone like Ron Smith and Associates, who takes on lots of cases, has high-level security clearance. I mean, they've got some of the highest top-secret-level clearance, has no access to these criminal databases. And that... It doesn't seem right if this is supposed to be a transparent, neutral sort of thing. But, all right, fine. The game's rigged, but then allow for that opportunity. And, and like they said, the publicly funded crime lab should do that and make that available. Or, or what, what they were saying, just by policy, do it ahead of time uh, so that they, the defense attorneys don't have to try to fight that later. Yeah, and, and they get that part. Or then allow defense to request it later in a case where it matters. And we know that that's not always going to be an available option to them. Right. At, at Oakland Police Department, we do run every APHIS quality print through APHIS, and then we do do a one and done for each person that we hit, uh, which I was happy to see that they were pretty okay with. Um, we do have the whole issue with defense being able to request further identifications, which 
I think we're, I'm going to take that back. And I think we're going to look at that and see what we can possibly do with that, which is a great point. Uh, but I, I do appreciate that they were definitely willing to work with that. And I think one other really important point that they brought up was that sometimes the post conviction defense doesn't even have access to the notes, which I, as a bench examiner, I tend to think of when I give discovery, the prosecution gives that to defense, which I know sometimes doesn't exactly happen, but that's a whole other issue. But I give discovery, prosecution gives it to defense. Okay, they have access to my notes. But they were saying, no, that has to go into the report because sometimes in post-conviction, they don't even get everything that the original defense had. And that's that's actually a really big point for me. Uh, all right, Becca, uh, what else have you seen uh, this week? Or, or have you just been uh, partying and that was the only lecture you went to? Um, yeah, that was the only lecture. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I've been just kind of flitting around. There's been actually a lot of good lectures. I, it, this week has, I mean, it's only Tuesday, but it's been pretty good so far. Um, really enjoying, especially the networking part. It's just really good, especially as you mentioned, there's so many people here. And the latent print world is a very small world. It's just running into lots of people that I've known before, reacquainting myself with people. It's been really great. All right, what about you, Eric? What uh, what have you seen that you enjoyed? Well, I, I know we're going to bring in more people. I don't want to step on their toes, but the the one that that um, I was like inside jumping up and down for was uh, the, just the last one this afternoon, right before we started this. Um, Tim Fail yeah, from from Santa Clara County, yes. Uh, Becky used to work there. Uh, gave a presentation. Um, he had some doubts about uh, some research that uh, Henry Swafford had done about uh, the use of the word identification versus association. It's a little more complicated than that, but essentially that's the, kind of the, the gist of it. With respect to juror understanding of what that meant, or right. mock juror or lay person understanding. So he, he decided, you know, I'm not just going to express doubts. I'm actually going to, you know, send out my own survey and see what, what I find. And he modified it a little bit. Um, gave the jurors more options to pick from rather than just a, um, uh, a binary choice. Uh, and also did a follow-up questionnaire asking about, uh, put it where basically the uh, survey taker had to read through a little paragraph uh, expressing, uh, giving more of a complete answer than just the generic kind of flat definition of identification versus association. And uh, what he found was, uh, first off, most jurors don't associate identification with exclusion of all others. Um, Most lay people. That lay people, survey. right. Um, and again, and this is not a scientific survey he did. This is more of an ad hoc kind of thing. Through SurveyMonkey as an app. Right. Now, fewer people use the words exclusion of all others when thinking about association. However, giving a more complete courtroom answer for the word identification um, also reduced the number of people who who then linked that up with exclusion of all others. So it, it basically, in my mind, was was pretty um, a pretty strong made a pretty strong case for we're actually pretty good with identification without you know most of the potential jurors misunderstanding that and overstating that into exclusion of all others. Uh, and um, giving that courtroom testimony to the jurors, which would normally be what happened, really mitigates a lot of that perceived risk of them overestimating what an identification means. Yeah, I like two things about that presentation. 
Re- Rebecca, did you did you see it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, two things I really liked about it um, were uh, first, this is good science. When someone proposes something and you sort of doubt it, it's great when you see a repeat of this. It's so rare, and people just accept those results and then they try to build off it. I really like the well, let's redo this and see if we get different results. Now he fully admitted the differences between his study and Henry's, and I, I thought he very professional about it and honoring what Henry did, but then highlighting the differences of what he did. And you know, the, 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 the framing, the context of the questions were different. And they may have had a different outcome. And so they may not actually be the exact same study, but he might have shown that given this context, here's what they interpreted. And I thought that was really, really good. And that following up on that second point is exactly as you said, if you frame it this way and explain it this way, and his explanation was great because it basically said, here's my conclusion. Yes, I can't compare everyone in the world, so I can't exclude everyone technically. On the other hand, we've never seen two fingerprints that are the same. I'm very trained in this. We have a very low error rate. I wouldn't expect to see this amount of agreement. That said, I believe these came from the same person. And that framing and context I thought was really good, and, and those results might have shown that that framing increased their understanding of what we were trying to express. I, no, I, I, thought it was, I thought it was a great presentation, too. I really enjoyed it. And yeah, and you know, we did an episode on Henry's thing maybe a year and a half ago. I want to say... I, oh, I don't s- think our episode was that long. I think the research came out maybe. Like a year and a half ago? Okay. I, I want to say our episode was maybe like spring-ish of 2018, but I'd have to go back and look at the archives. But anyway. Um, if you say so. <laughs> I will defer to you. Uh, ho- hopefully the, it's easy enough to find that episode in our in our new DoubleLoopPodcast.com website. Hey, quick ad break here to mention the DoubleLoopPodcast.com website. Go there for all your fingerprint needs from the Double Loop Podcast. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and thanks to Michael White for putting that together. Uh, okay. So in that um, uh, in that episode, we talked about uh, at least I did um, talked about some of my doubts about I remember uh, about how he phrased those questions and the conclusions Framing. that he drew from them. Yep. Especially since it was just a binary choice. Yep. Yeah, I think the way the questions were phrased was really important, and I think Tim brought up a good point too. Is the the options were pretty verbose and for a lay person to sit there and work through the survey and read through that entire thing i think maybe the results might actually be different uh if we had a even larger sample size but i i do think it's it's really interesting too because i think we've made such a big leap in the last say 10 years or so where we're now acknowledging our mistakes in court we're acknowledging our mistakes to the public for the most part there's there's some holdouts but for the most part and i think those answers from that kind of survey would have been very different 10 years ago and now we're kind of advertising hey look what we do there's humans involved there's some error we we acknowledge that and i i think the lay people are starting to catch on to that too because i think 10 years ago the answers to that survey would have been quite different even with the different framing I mean, when we interviewed Laura Keck, I don't know, whenever it was, uh, a few months, few months ago. ago. Yeah, about six months ago. I mean, she had answers that were similar to that survey. I mean, when we proposed a similar kind of framing or context, she did not go to exclusion all others. She, right. she had kind of a similar thing. It's probably his fingerprint. I'm going to say that with some relative certainty as a juror. That's enough for me. But I don't, I'm not going to go to an extreme, but it certainly is meaningful 
the way you've expressed it. Right, right. And, and I think that that's the same reaction we get from cops, too, where if we give them an ID... They're not, you know, they're not bringing, breaking out the SWAT team. They're just, uh, they're just knocking on the door to ask questions. You know, it's a, it's a first step <laughs> for the most part. No, no. It, it, all right. So now we should share with the listeners. So on the first day, I ha- I was part of a panel. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we're all laughing. Oh, because this is yeah. good. This is good. All right. So I will share the story for those that weren't here. I was part of a panel. There were a bunch of us on the panel. Glenn got angry. <laughs> I, 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 get, I got a little snippy. Uh, what, what, a little? A yeah, little, little, little bit. snippy? A little snotty, maybe? Yeah, just a little bit, I would say. Uh, so, all right, let's frame this for the listener. <laughs> we had just talked about different kinds of conclusions, and you had a statistician talking about the kinds of conclusions. You had Austin Hicklin talking about black box study and how this works into and how you validate these different new proposed OSAC conclusions. Eric, we're going to be doing a, an episode on this eventually here. Absolutely. So it'll probably even come up again. And you have these multiple presenters, Aldo from Italy, talking about how Europe has modified their conclusions. And I got up there at the end and, and talked about, again, just gave a visual representation of what the verbal likelihood ratio is and what different levels of support, like limited support, strong support, extremely strong support, what that would look like, how I'm using it in my cases. So we got all done with that, and then when the audience started asking questions, one of the first people to jump right up to the microphone asked a question. Well, it wasn't even a question. It was More a of a comment. statement, it right? Was a comment, statement yeah. That basically said, "Well, this sounds." He didn't say these words, but he, it came off very aggressive, a little bit as this is all BS. I work with a bunch of police officers who are highly trained. And they give reports to investigators, and those investigators trust them when they say it's an ID. And when they say it's an ID, they go arrest people. And, like, shoot to kill. Yeah, basically. And so when you give information in your report that's less than an ID, you're going to end up with lots of people in jail and being arrested who didn't commit this crime because the cop didn't understand. I think you've shown the data doesn't quite support that. Well, I don't or know from that, your experience, at from, least. From my experience. And, and from his experience, he even said, and this is his, he's speaking to his truth. I, I got to use that phrase. He was speaking to his truth. From his perspective, he has seen cops go off on leads that were less than solid that go and arrest people. And he, he said, I've seen that happen. What, which kind of confused me of how because would he they see don't do it. If, if they don't give I out know. a support for same source like a, a inconclusive with similarities could not exclude whatever you want to call it yeah. if his agency doesn't give that out then how would cops in his agency which he said happened i know go out and make these arrests on even though when if you were to give out that result odds are you're actually correct that it is him at ground truth um but the prosecutor's not going to charge that they may not sign off on those more we've talked on other episodes about how that can be handled responsibly heck we we uh way back when we did a panel uh at the uh tri-division conference in arizona when you just called in we had an officer on the panel and we asked him if we give you this report you knocking down the door with a with a with a tank and you know and he's like no that's crazy and I don't know about you guys, but in Oakland, prosecutors won't even charge anything if it's on the outside of a car. So why right. are they going to go charge something if you haven't right. done an actual identification? I, I, I don't see that happening. In some places, maybe it could. Right. So I can't dismiss and maybe in his jurisdiction that happens. Okay. That's not a reason for the rest of us not to go there. But if that is his experience, okay, I can't dismiss that. 
The thing that just bothers me is I can't stand this boogeyman argument. Yep. When I came into the profession 20 years ago, this argument was 20 years old. We can't say inconclusive, just even inconclusive to the latent, because that might confuse cops and jurors, and they're going to go and arrest people. And now here we are saying inconclusive, and that hasn't happened. You gave, uh, you had a hearing, right, Eric? Daubert hearing. A Daubert hearing yes. on an inconclusive. Uh, did, uh, inconclusive with similarities. Right. So the essentially what's now Ozak's calling support for same source. Right. Did the judge lock that person up after hearing your testimony? Well, no, but he said I could testify to that, and then we went to court. And, well, technically the, the jury was hung afterwards, but that's a whole other yes. uh, uh, thing. But the judge said that's fine. Right. It's fine to say that. As long as you give these caveats. And, and I did it, over right. and over no, again. No, no, right. So, well... And isn't the fact that the jury was hung kind of prove the point that we can present this information and people will take it as what we explain it as instead of just running off to the races and saying, okay, that's him, lock him up? Right, and we've seen other studies or mock studies or mock surveys of jurors that show that they can differentiate between an ID and something less than an ID. So so that said, when he came up with this, and he, he was aggressive in his attitude, so I definitely, <laughs> I definitely shot back. And I, the first question I asked him was, well, does your agency do DNA? Because DNA has been doing this for a long time. And he said, well, we don't do DNA and I'm not talking about DNA. Which I said, well, I am because it's not any different. Because DNA has been reporting probabilities less than certain for a very long time. Well, you know, so one's just constructive feedback. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what I would have uh, suggested you go to instead of DNA, because DNA makes cops go like, you know. Sure, sure. You know, yeah, they, you know. Understood. But say... Um, does your agency do footwear? Right, right. Do they do question document examinations? Right. Every other field except for us, more or less, does yeah. this kind of uh, reporting. Uh, but he, he zoomed on the statistics specifically. Exactly. As in the statistics are BS and we should, we should never do those. So I handled that poorly, frankly. What I should have said to him was, you have a good point in that it is important that if we make this change, we need to train the... The, the, the end users, we need to train the prosecutors and the police officers who will receive these reports and train them what they mean. Now, if they still don't understand them, that's not our problem. We have done what we can to do that. But I, sh- I should have said, yes, I understand your point, but that does not mean we can't do this. It means we need to take responsibility to train them. I didn't say that. I just we shot back in exchange and I was very <laughs> pissy with him. So a little bit more context. The, the, his comments also came uh, kind of in the context of OSAC is putting out this five conclusion scale, and he said, "And we'll never do that." Right. He so did th- say that. Yeah. So, th- so that already was, I'm on fu mode. So that's kind of what he was putting out, and and more even more so that OSAC is forcing this five conclusion scale onto us and particular his agency. Yeah. Imagine science being forced onto a police department. Now, what I really liked after that, and after you spoke, is that Henry Swafford got up, and I really enjoyed, I really did appreciate Henry's response. No, I agree. Which was, what OSAC is doing. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> no, Henry just made up for what you were doing. Henry no, I agree. was like, oh, let me smooth it out a little no, bit. No, I, I agree. He handled that very nicely. He, he said, what we're doing is we're putting out these options. If an agency chooses to use all five uh, portions of this scale, Here's how to do it. If you're only going to use three of the five, uh, then just use those three, and then here's how you do those three. 
Um, but the OSAC isn't putting out the five as this is what everyone shall do. Right. Right. Yeah. Yes, he did what I should have done. <laughs> I totally agree. I, no, I was definitely on edge. And I don't know why I was so aggressive back, but you just just push my, my buttons because I'm sick of that argument. I'm sick of the, we can't use a statistical model because you will end up locking up all these innocent people off of it. Well, I, I think just, probably, I, that's nonsense. probably about 50% of the the field is sick of that argument and the other 50% is making that argument. No, We've you're got right. this kind of no, you're right. headbutting going on and I think it's just a sore subject. And yeah, and it requires training. I think examiners training and seeing examples how like, for example, San Diego Sheriff's Department San Diego, handled, <laughs> San Diego has handled, for example, inconclusive APHIS hits or how agencies are handling investigative leads and, and someone even said to me afterwards you know, if you had framed that as intelligence information that might have been a completely different argument because using fingerprint information less than certain for intelligence not for arresting not for charging but for intelligence they might get that and that's fair well and i think david stoney is going to be presenting later this week Mm -hmm. about his research regarding that with the whole statistics and prints that are around three to five minutiae or so and that'll be interesting to see people's reactions to that as well because he came and presented at the california association for criminalists in oakland this year and i thought it was pretty interesting i i, I kind of want to see what his data is now because yeah. it's been a few months and how he's pulled it together a little bit more but it was it was pretty interesting well that's great already on day one heck that wasn't even just day one that was the first panel discussion first lecture first anything after the opening ceremonies which Glenn were also yeah. Which were also really awesome. I really enjoyed the uh, the the, um, the keynote speaker that we had uh, this year. Uh, he was the officer from the Sikh temple shootings up in Wisconsin. Uh, you can probably Google Wikipedia and find all about that. But uh, all right, well, Becca, thank you so much for joining us and for starting off our show this week. Which uh, lecture workshop uh, do you see coming up here in the next three days? Are you looking forward to the most? Well, uh, tomorrow I'm doing a workshop on footprint impressions and i'm kind of excited about that we don't have a lot of training on that so i'm curious to see i've done i've done a little maybe a couple hours of an intro to it so i'm I'm curious about that i don't know how often i'll be able to use it i think it'll be really interesting to learn all right well thank you again and um uh everybody um you know keep going to doublepodcast.com uh and uh becca and i and the rest of the and glenn and the rest of the double loop podcast team of super friends are going to be starting to put up some merchandise soon so uh, keep an eye out for that all right uh we'll get another guest on here as soon as we can track one down in part two of this episode i'm happy and pleased to invite an interview to be on the podcast uh two very good friends of mine Carrie Hall and Nicole Praska, both of whom I worked with at the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension in Minnesota, and they are here to talk about some of their blood research. Isn't that right? That's right. Indeed. All right, so Nicole, do you want to give a little bit of your background? Sure. I was an intern at the BCA in 2011 while I was in college, and my research project as an intern focused on bloody latent prints, or rather whether latent prints can be exposed to blood and be mistaken, possibly, for genuine bloody fingerprints. And that research project led to a paper, which has led to lectures and now a workshop. And expanding on that research, 
recently. Carrie and I uh, made these videos of fingerprints and blood being placed on a glass surface and uh, trying to see how that differs from deposition of other matrices like ink and uh, lotion and ecran sweat. So we got both the workshop and the slow-mo videos lecture. So are these videos available for listeners to watch or is it just through the lecture or the workshop that they can see them? Right now it's just the lectures. So if you're here at the conference, Friday afternoon, we're the last lecture of the conference. So come on by and then we'll see what we'll do from there. Is it a lecture or workshop? The videos are a lecture and the research, the larger research project um, concerning the analysis of bloody fingerprints is a workshop. We are also presenting at the Pacific Northwest II Division. So uh, we are doing a workshop there, and we are also presenting the slow-mo videos at that conference as well. Are, are these, do you guys have any plans on um, uh, on posting them, or can we put them, like, at least like one of them maybe uh, on our wpodcast.com website? We can definitely post one of the videos. Uh, they're fairly large files because when I edited them, uh, to make them slow-mo, they become many frames per second. Oh, yeah. So they became quite large files. So there's no way we could host them all on a, a specific, uh, on your site. Uh, we're happy to post any of our, our, one of our most interesting images that we're most excited to share. We found something very exciting that um, we are we are quite interested to share with You people. should use the Pied Piper compression algorithm. You, you don't know, you don't watch that show? Silicon Valley? No, sorry, oh, okay. I don't. All right, all right. Never mind. Uh, Some Glenn, listeners will Glenn, be laughing. Glenn's got this grin on his face as he's making this joke, and he's staring right at me, and, and I, it's just crickets behind my eyes. I have no... <laughs> all right, well, some listeners will have found that amusing. Is well, that season four? I feel like that's season pipe, four. No, it's like from the get-go. That really? That's the whole oh. algorithm, the compression algorithm. <laughs> okay. Okay. I thought it was four. So watch uh, Silicon Valley uh, on, HBO? on HBO. Sunday night. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, what's uh, kind of? Can you guys give it like a like an for the workshop part of it? Kind of an overview of uh, what kind of points you guys hit on. Well, we kind of go over my research paper um, from 2011 was when the research was done, but I think it was published in 2013, and um, so that focuses on genuine bloody fingerprints. So, blood is on the finger when it's deposited, and also latent prints that are deposited and then later exposed to blood. Also, a third mechanism of blood on the surface first, and then a clean finger, or relatively clean, just non-bloodied finger, coming into contact with the blood stain and possibly leaving a, a negative impression and or transferring to another surface. So we discussed those three mechanisms and how to look at an image of a bloody fingerprint and just more closely examine and understand what could possibly be happening, um, look for certain characteristics that could potentially lead you to... A specific conclusion. Yeah. I but mean, not conclusion. Conclusion is too strong. Just to be aware of it. So if you're asked on the stand about this activity level proposition, that you at least are informed instead of being a deer in the headlights and making something up on the stand or uh, saying something beyond what is represented supported. by the science. Yeah. Thank you. Supported by the science. Yeah. Additionally, we have exercises. So we go through how to differentiate some of these visual characteristics. And then we have exercises to determine whether or not the examiners can pick out or the students within the course can pick out some of those 
um, visual characteristics. So we have all of the mechanisms represented in the exercises, and then we'll go over as a group um, whether or not they could determine what some of the mechanisms were, and then ultimately we leave them with tips for remembrance purposes. So for instance, one of our biggest recommendations is that they photograph the evidence in its natural state before they do processing. Because one of the big findings was that once you begin to process with these blood processing reagents, that it becomes much more difficult to pick out these visual characteristics. So it was important for us to not only let people know that this was possible, because we had seen testimony previously that said like oh absolutely this isn't possible I would expect it to visually look different Um, but then also to let them know that there are some there are some steps that they can take in the laboratory that are going to help them before they get in too deep and then cannot do any of these types of analysis so so what what you're saying basically is that while you may not in some some impressions you can't really tell the difference between blood on the surface first or blood on the finger first there are some clues you can look at, look for, that might uh, be able to indicate one or the other? Yeah. I uh, wouldn't advocate you could conclusively say what happened to get blood on that surface in the shape of a finger mark, but um, at least to be aware of it and, yes, to photograph prior to processing and uh, being educated and being able to explain that to a jury or whomever is asking. And then the last part of the workshop, we cover some practical cases. So in my experience, um, in my full-time employment, there have been cases where the questions have been not necessarily related to the source, but to the activity of how these impressions were deposited. So at the end of the lecture, after at the end of the workshop, after we cover the exercises and the lessons, I essentially go through some cases where those have been critical questions. So it's essentially a culmination of the information that's been learned. And some of the cases I present, you know, it's obvious that I, I haven't made conclusions about what the mechanisms were, but I go through exactly how I documented why my findings ultimately resulted in a sort of inconclusive finding. So I present here are the things that I found within the images that led me to not be able to conclude what mechanism it was. And so I think it's a great example for people uh, to know that this is not something you should be doing on the stand. This was something that I did in the laboratory before testimony in preparation because I knew the source is not the issue in this case. The, the, The suspect actually had legitimate access to the scene. The fundamental question in this case was, what is the activity and what was the nature of this deposit? And so those are some of the cases that we cover at the end of the workshop to essentially summarize why this research is critically important for examiners to know about. And just so someone is not on the stand and is asked, is it possible that this bloody fingerprint was left in a different way and should not be able to say, shouldn't be saying it is impossible. The only way that this bloody fingerprint happened was because there was blood on the defendant's finger when it was deposited. So I I love the topic that you guys are talking about quite a bit. It's very near and dear to my heart, this activity level sort of issue. It's something that I think Eric and I will probably have an episode on in the future because I think this is starting to come around now that we as a community are just waking up to how important activity level issues are. And as Terry said, and I, I agree 100%, these are things we should not be answering on the stand impromptu. We should be attempting to address in the laboratory, write in a report or notes, and have technically reviewed by other scientists and make sure it's within our scope 
of accreditation or scope of experience and training so you can give an appropriate conclusion. So that said, uh, you know, the DNA realm right now is dealing with a lot of activity level issues. And I believe because usually what happens with them, it's going to make its way over here eventually. So I think that this community of fingerprint examiners is going to have to deal with activity level issues very soon in a more formal way. So I really appreciate what you guys are doing. I think you're ahead of the curve by addressing it from the blood perspective and getting people aware, maybe I'm not actually trained to offer an opinion. And even if you've offered an opinion in the past, at least now you're showing them why that would be really dangerous to, because it's not as clear cut as they might think their quote unquote training and experience is going to always guide them in the right direction. Just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean it can't happen. Absolutely. And I think this is something that you guys have talked about in previous podcasts, that the criminal justice system has a problem with asking a question that hasn't been part of the initial request to the laboratory. So in some ways, I, I can't fault examiners for being on the stand and feeling this pressure of answering this question that becomes fundamental to the prosecution or the defense's case because it's never been requested of them in advance. It's suddenly like, well, this is my narrative and I feel that I have to get this narrative out there. So I'm going to ask this witness who is my only opportunity to share my perspective. And so in some ways, I, I can't fault the examiner for being stuck on the stand and having to answer this critical question. But in some ways, it's also a fundamental problem with how laboratory analysis requests happen in the first place. So law enforcement are critically asking the question about what is the source. They're not often asking what is the activity. That's usually a question that comes later from either prosecution or defense when they're trying to tell a narrative about how a particular type of case happened or trying to prove an aspect that's required for them to establish that a particular crime happened. So in some ways, again, this is another fundamental flaw of just the way our criminal justice system is set up. Not that all of those criticisms are, you know, fully founded, but this is, a, this is another aspect where forensic science and the way it's used in court is not particularly compatible. Well, Carrie, uh, Nicole, thank you guys so much for, for stopping by and, and joining us for the 2019 conference here in Reno. And I just wanted to say, Carrie, since you're here, perhaps you should give the first time ever plug that we have been remiss to plug. Uh, apparently, there's another social media aspect to the Double Loop podcast. Correct. So you guys have been on Instagram for some time now. Yeah, Instagram. I'm not sure I knew that, but all right. Uh, I have reminded you several times to add it to your presentations. I noticed today it was also lacking, it was despite lacking. my many reminders that you needed to add it uh, you know, to both of your presentations. And seeing that slide with like all of your like contactables or something, I I think I need to offer some help in uh, in some graphic design there. You, you got you got kind of like a Windows Windows ninety five look going on there, so um, we'll, we'll, maybe we can give you a, give a hand. Fair, that's a fair point. I, I will accept that, Chris, and I will accept your free help since you oh. just offered. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, and okay, then. okay. I oh yeah, I'll, I'll get right on it. Uh, so yeah, thank you, got thank you, uh, Carrie, for Instagramming. Uh, she's always sending requests out to me to send her photos of stuff, like when I'm traveling or. Uh, other fingerprint related stuff and, and um Clint and I need to be both better at that but uh we're we're just trouble old fogies that don't understand all this new generation stuff so uh sure that brother uh, but um uh, I don't know thank you Carrie for for uh cuz Carrie's kind of come on the team uh helping out a lot with uh, with the podcast like 
uh, our previous guest, uh, Becca, has been. So uh, thank you also to you for uh, all that. And thank you guys for sharing about your uh, lecture and workshop here. Of course. Thank you. All right. I think we might grab one more. All right. And uh, to close out our extra long episode of uh, W Podcast in at the IAI uh, Vendor Conference, we got kicked out a little bit, but we're down the hall a little ways uh, with a, a couple more people that have been at the conference. Can you guys introduce yourselves? Sure. Hi, I'm Claudine Carter-Pineda. I'm from the Broward Sheriff's Office Crime Lab. And I'm Jason Jardine, also from the Broward County Sheriff's Office Crime Lab. All right, welcome, guys. Yeah, Glenn? Well, I just wanted to say, Jason and I, we go a little ways back. Jason and I both attended Michigan State together. Yeah, uh, she's Michigan State. Roughly in the same era. Yeah, so, yes, yeah, uh, go green. Go whites. And, uh, yes, Glenn and I have known each other for 20 years now. Um, well, look, okay, glad we have a little reunion here. Um, so what we wanted to, uh, to ask about is kind of, uh, you know, we've, we're only two days in and, but, uh, you know, kind of what lectures or workshops you guys have seen so far. Okay. Well, I attended the getting better results from your team workshop, which focused on working on your strengths versus focusing on weaknesses. So that was a very, uh, good workshop because most of the time we spend a lot of time focusing on what you need to get better at versus focusing on the things that you do well. And so if you take the time to actually work on those things you do well, you're going to exponentially grow as far as your strengths and those things will make you happier of an employee. And so for me as a lab director, I'm more interested in finding and keeping happy employees versus drilling in that this mm -hmm. is your weakness. So for me, it was a great workshop. Great. Who put that one on? Um, her name was Jessica. I can't remember her last name. Jennifer, not Jessica. Sorry, Je Jennifer Green. Oh, great, great, great. Even lab managers can find uh, uh, workshops and lectures here at the conference that uh, can apply to them. Yeah, Jennifer Green, She uh, she's actually part of this professional management series. And she, for the last few years of BI, hosts a lot of leadership either uh, workshops, as you attended, or lectures. And she actually, her professional job is, in fact, actually a coach. And so she is a professional coach for some either large organizations or you know, fairly reach uh, people who are looking for life coaching. <laughs> but no, it's, it's her professional job, and she is good at it. Well, Jason, what about you? Uh, what, what have you seen so far this uh, this week? Well, not to be a brown noser here, but I certainly enjoyed Glenn's class this afternoon um, regarding uh, determination of age of fingerprints. I think for years we've heard testimony from examiners saying that fingerprints were fresh or, you know, that they can make some kind of age determination, determination just by looking at it. And it's good that Glenn brings this to light that there really is no scientific foundation for this kind of uh, testimony and that we really need to be cautious in how we opine when we're in court. I accept your brown nosing. Thank you, Frel Spartan. I really appreciate that. No, I, and I enjoyed giving this talk today. I've been working on it for a while and given it in a few limited circles, so I was excited to un, unfold it at the IAI. And I've, I've heard from a few people that they hadn't, either they weren't trained in these issues, what we call activity level issues, or age determinations. And I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, back in the day, I, I know lots of either crime scene techs or people that would talk about just looking at a fingerprint, how it reacted to powder or how fresh it looked and the, the science doesn't support it. So that was, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I think you may have misunderstood. I think they were talking about fresh in the terms of like fresh Prince there of Bel Air. That's, I knew it. I knew it was coming. That I think is what they're really getting at. And, and you may be able to 
to to measure the ratio of freshness versus jazzy jeffness to to <laughs> it's been a long two days people I, I hope you can appreciate no that. Uncle Phil reference uh, um, Sh- shredder um, I'll get you turtles <laughs> oh man <laughs> all right um, well uh, follow up question here now uh, just before we close out the episode uh, we got three days left so what's something you guys are looking forward to I'm looking forward to the uh, statistics class tomorrow or workshop um, that I have. So from Glenn? No, I'm kidding. It's actually not from Glenn. <laughs> wait, wait, is that class hell. not it's from Glenn? It's from hell, yeah. yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. You know, I'm looking forward to the day when we can actually have a working statistical model that helps us express our opinions in a more objective manner. So I look forward to that day. Yeah. And so Hal Stern is a, a statistician who's on OSAC. And he was on the panel that I was on that we discussed earlier on Monday. And he's one of these guys who came in really green as a statistician and didn't understand forensics. But now, for the last eight years, he's been in the forensic realm. And I've watched how he's begun to understand forensics and now how to start explaining statistics to forensic scientists. It's been been fun watching that evolution. But, yeah, I I think you'll really enjoy that. He's, for the last few years... um, shaped these workshops and how he presents statistics in, in an easier, uh, digestible manner. Oh, that's good. I look forward to it. And? I'm also looking forward to that workshop because Jason and I have had many discussions about, you know, having a statistical model that we can work with so that there's a quantitative measure for what it is that we're doing. Um, and also, I'm supposed to be on a panel discussion tomorrow, so I'm looking forward to that as well. So that'll be fun. Oh, well, okay. Well, you know, you know, there's going to be a follow-up question here about what this panel discussion is, and you know, who else is on it, or what the topic is. You got to, you got to explain a little bit more than that. Yes, yeah, Cece, please tell us. <laughs> well, Glenn would be the person that knows more about the panel discussion than myself. However, it's um, a management, um, forensic management panel discussion. So I'll be one of the participants or panelists for that discussion, as will Glenn. And I can't remember who else is on the panel, but uh, Glenn can tell you. Bill Shade and Elliot. Uh, um, yeah, L.A. Springer from uh, New York. All right. Well, sounds great. Um, well, I'm glad you guys made it all the way out here to the high desert from uh, the the low swamps. And uh, um, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy the rest of the conference. Well, uh, Glenn, I guess that'll do it for for us for uh, you know this uh, this episode 2019 in Reno, Nevada. Remember to follow us at Double Loop Pod. Uh, also now uh, on Twitter and Instagram, we got to keep we got to remember that. Uh, you can email us uh, Eric at RayForensics.com, Glenn at ElitePhorensicServices.com. Also check out our webpage DoubleLoopPodcast.com. Thank you, Michael White, for that website, of course. Absolutely, and uh, remember the opinions expressed on the podcast by uh, Glenn and I and our guests, many guests this episode, are theirs alone and not necessarily those of anyone they may, may work for. Uh, so with that, uh, we'll sign off from, uh, from Reno and, uh, we'll talk to you guys here soon. Bye everybody. Have a good week. How did you do that? How did I know what? How did, how did you just keep a straight face? I'm so, I'm so, I'm so impressed. I'm so impressed. I'm so impressed. <laughs> I love watching your face go, what the fuck? <laughs> I, I, and I was watching her, so I was trying to hold the microphone. Watching your face made it even harder. Now, <laughs> the fuck I, is happening You here? should be so proud of yourself. You really should be proud of yourself. That was goddamn impressive. <laughs>
it's, it's, it's no, we'll keep know. that one for the blooper reel. 